God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds so that we would know you truly and know what we are called uh, to do. I thank you for the gift of Scripture, and I pray that we would be a community who is shaped by it now and always. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, I've got four names for you. Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton. Should we talk? (laughs) Changes the uh, temperature of the room, doesn't it, pretty quickly. Uh, For those of you who haven't heard, uh, the United States is in the process right now of deciding who is going to be the next uh, president uh, of our nation. And what has become clear over the last several months as different people have popped their heads up saying, I want to be president, is that uh, the people of the United States are pretty divided over who we believe should be the next leader uh, of our country. Now, in my short experience, um, it's always been a divide at this point between two different people. It's been a Republican side and a Democratic side, but but this side, the divide goes, uh, this year, the divide goes even further. So within the Democratic side, you've got a party split between two candidates, and on the Republican side, you've had a whole bunch of different candidates, and now it's kind of down to two, and there's question marks surrounding all of uh, that as well. But this election cycle has seemed uh, crazier than normal, at least to me. Maybe it's just because I haven't been paying attention that long, but it's interesting to see how different people respond in different ways. So within each party, you have a candidate who is considered kind of an anti-establishment brand kind of a candidate. You've got some people drawn to them. You've got other people who are drawn to to this leadership trait or that leadership trait or this policy or or that policy. But we've had rallies, we've had protests, we've had counter-protests, all sorts of different things. And and it seems like, if you've been watching this, the only ones who who are really winning in this whole thing are the late-night television hosts who suddenly have a whole bunch of material to work with as they try to get us to laugh about this so that we just don't spiral into despair and throw up our hands. But for as much uh, emotion and talk has surrounded these presidential primaries, they, they bring up a very important question. What makes a good leader? It's obviously a very important question as we look at uh, the leader of, of a, a country, a whole nation, but it's also a very important question for us to ask within the church as well. What makes a good leader? As followers of Jesus, we are people who are guided by Scripture, and so we, we look, at, look to the Bible for guidance of what does make a good leader. What does the Bible have to say about leadership? How are Christians, followers of Jesus, to think about what a good leader looks like? This spring, we're in a book, a little book called uh, Titus, in a short series called A Church Called to Make a Difference. This is a letter that's written by a man named Paul, who's an uh, established, uh, long-time church leader, and he's looking ahead to the end of his life, and he's writing to the next generation of leaders uh, to help the church grow healthy and, and be sustained after he's gone out of the picture. Uh, so the text that we have before us today is Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. Uh, you can use a, a Bible from the Purack, and it's found on page 1181, Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 16. As we look at this, we're going to break it into two sections as we look at the, the, the uh, church leadership uh, image that's developed here, the who of church leadership and the why of church leadership. So we start off by looking at the who of church uh, leaders. And last week we saw that Paul introduced this letter in reference to his own calling. This great message about Jesus has transformed his life, this message of eternal life. And and now he has become a servant of God, and he's been appointed to be an apostle, to bring this good news of Jesus to everyone, everywhere. And so he writes this letter to Titus, who he calls, my true son in our common faith. 
And these are the instructions that he gives him, starting in verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now you have to understand that, that Paul and Titus were involved in ministry on this island of Crete. Crete is an island in the Mediterranean world. looks pretty nice. Maybe we should go there. Uh, but they weren't there in, on vacation or, or as tourists. They were there as missionaries. They came to bring the great news of Jesus to this island. And it was working. People were believing this message of Jesus, and their lives were being transformed. They were becoming Christians, and that means that the church was being established on the island of Crete. That's great, and yet Paul says there's unfinished business here. Now, we might think it's enough to just tell the story of Jesus and have people believe that, and then it's, it's wonderful, right? Then, then you have organic Christian community. The Christians are gathering together. This is a great thing. And in an ideal world, perhaps that would be all you'd need. But anyone who has come to uh, trust Jesus and, and uh, give their life over to him knows that it's, it's just not that easy. Growing to know God and to know what it means to live in obedience to him is a lifelong process that's not a straight shot from A to B. You know that there are some days where you are so excited and you're growing, and you're learning, you feel so close to God. These are wonderful times in the Christian life. But you also know that there are times when you're really frustrated. You're fed up with the people around you. You're, you're tired of the church and all the stuff that goes along with that. And maybe you feel really distant from God. You don't understand what he's doing. These are really hard times. So the, the growth of the Christian life, growing to know God and to, to live in obedience to him, it's got ups and downs and twists and turns and all sorts of different things. It's a messy kind of a thing. Now, if you're stuck with just a bunch of, of new believers like yourself and you're trying to navigate all of that, you're really headed for disaster. You can get into a lot of trouble there because you need people who have been through that journey before you, more mature Christians who can give you perspective and help you understand, yes, this is why I'm feeling this way. Other people have gone through this before me. It's going to be okay. And to help draw you to understand the gospel more and more and what it means to live in obedience to him. That's why Paul is telling Titus to appoint elders. The church needs leaders because we need people who are more established and more firm in the faith to be able to help us out if we're newer believers. We'll get more to the why of church leadership in a minute, but, but let's focus now on the who. That's where Paul starts. What is the right kind of leader? Look at verses 6 through 9 of Titus 1. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So what makes a good leader? Well, this is what a good leader looks like. And if you look at this passage and, and kind of look at the category of what Paul is talking about here, it's about character, right? All of these are, are character traits. This is about who a person is within themselves. And as you look at the words he uses, the, the banner or kind of the, the tagline over the whole thing, the category here is blameless. Now let's just stop there for a minute. If we're going to say, okay, we need church leaders, stand up if you're perfect, who's going to stand up? 
I mean, maybe one or two people are going to, but then we're going to know that they're liars and they're not fit for ministry, right? And yet Paul says that an elder, an overseer, must be blameless. We have to understand what it means to be blameless and how someone becomes blameless. So look at another, two other letters that Paul writes. The first one is to a church in Corinth. At the beginning of this letter, he's reminding them of what God has done. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. This is speaking of God. God will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So to be blameless is the work of God in us. Look at the beginning to another letter, Colossians chapter 1. We've got a whole history wrapped up in here. Colossians 1.21, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Does that sound perfect? Does that sound blameless? But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, that's blameless, free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. So what does it mean to be blameless? It means that Jesus has died for your sins, and now you stand before God counted as righteous in him. So when Paul talks about elders and overseers needing to be blameless, he's talking about people who have believed the gospel message and who are counted righteous in Christ. People who are living in step with the Spirit of God who is making them holy, blameless, who are holding fast to the gospel and being then counted as blameless. It's interesting as he talks about the different qualifications for what an elder needs to be, the kind of character that they're to have, he starts with the home life. Do you see that in verse 6? An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So really the test, the first test of an elder's character is who they are at home. Is this person a one-woman man, faithful to his spouse, not having a wife and then maybe a girlfriend or two on the side, kind of playing the field a little bit, but is he faithful to his marriage vows? Is he a good husband? Does he have children who believe, children who are faithful. They don't have to be perfect. No kids are perfect, right? But, but do the kids show that their dad is involved and loving? Does their lifestyle show that they have a parent who is teaching them who God is and what it means to live in obedience to him? Is, is it evident that this is a father who cares about his kids enough to discipline them and instruct them what it means to follow Christ? The home life of a leader is so important because this is about character, right? And character is about who you are when you think no one's looking. So you can fool some people by putting up a particular public persona, but your wife and kids know who you really are, right? They've seen you in your unguarded moments. They know the character of your life. And so the test of a leader for the church is who they are at home as well. Do they have godly character at home as well as in public? There's not this divide between public and private. Paul moves into a list of things that must not be present in the life of a leader of the church. Verse 7, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. I mean, think about those things. Those are things that if they were present in the life of the church, of someone who has an influence over the church, they would be devastating to the church. Rather than helping lead them toward increasing godliness and, and being established in the gospel, it would be tearing people down, disrupting the whole community of faith. Instead, this is what they should look like. Verse 8, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, 
holy, and disciplined. Simply put, this is a person, a leader of the church, must be someone who lives rightly before God and rightly before other people. All of this so far is really about characters. We look at what it takes to be a good leader, the right kind of leader for the church. It starts and ends with character. That's the most important thing. The right kind of leaders are known by their character. Now, why does character matter so much? Let me give you two examples. Uh, A few years ago, my brother-in-law spent some time in Thailand. And uh, while he was there, he took a bus tour with a group. And they were having a good time. They went up a mountain and kind of back down the other side. And and they were coming down. They had a bunch of tight switchbacks all the way down this mountain because it was pretty steep. And uh, they were, you know, just enjoying their time together after a nice uh, day outing. And they come around one switchback, and they're going a little bit fast. And so they kind of make jokes. Oh, the brakes must be going out. And then they come around the corner, and they do another turn, and it's even faster. And suddenly, the jokes turn into reality. It's true, the brakes on that bus are out. So the driver does the only thing he can do. He, he ends up at the next switchback, instead of taking the turn and continuing to gather speed as they go in the mountain, he, he ditches it. He takes it into the ditch, they crash into the thing. You can see the picture. This is what the inside of the bus looked like afterward. But here's the interesting thing about that. The bus driver didn't have a choice, right? He had to stop that bus. He had no brakes. So he did the right thing the best he could in, in bringing that to a stop, bringing the bus to a stop. But as soon as that bus stopped, he got out of his seat and took off running down the road. They never saw him again. Contrast that with a story that you know. January 15, 2009, a man named Chesley Sullenberger III was taking off from LaGuardia Airport in U.S. Airways Flight 1549. They had just taken off, were gaining altitude, when they flew into a flock of geese, took out both engines, And suddenly you've got 155 people in this giant airplane up in the air with no power. And incredibly, he was able to make an emergency landing on the Hudson River in New York, and he and his crew were able to get all 155 out safely. Here's the difference. uh, Chesley Sullenberger was the last one off that plane. Two times up and down um, where the passengers are to make sure no one was left. And he was the last one off that airplane. That is the difference that character makes. On a good day, on a normal day, that bus driver and that pilot are going to get you where you want to be, right? But when things go wrong, character really matters. That's when it really shows. And you know that we live in a world where things always go wrong. And that's going to get into what's happening in the church here, why we see the the why of of why church leadership is so important. But before we leave the the who, there's one more qualification that Paul gives us here of who the right church leaders are. Verse 9 of Titus 1, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So the right leaders not only have godly character, and that is the the huge requirement of a leader of God's people. It's it's godly character. But there's also this this big task that goes along with it. They need to know the scriptures so that they're able to point people to the truth and the life that's offered there. If you read the Bible, you see that there is an incredible message here. There is so much hope and peace and love and joy offered here by the message of scripture. The leaders of God's people have to know scripture so that they can pour that out to God's people and help them to grow, to, to have this new life in Christ and know what it means to have a God who loves us. 
And also, they have to know Scripture so that when they see people who are going off track and believing things that are not true, they're able to bring them back, to point out those errors, say, no, that's not what this is about. That doesn't line up with what God says in His Word. And that's the problem in Crete. And so we turn now to the why of church leadership. There are issues among the churches in Crete. Listen to how Paul describes it, starting in verse 10 through verse 16. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupt and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Now, it's impossible to know exactly what the nature of this teaching uh, is, uh, is on this island of Crete and the, the nature of, of what's going on here. Uh, obviously, Titus would have known and the church would have known, but we see enough of a picture here to see that this is having a devastating impact on the church. I mean, look at the strong words that Paul uses to describe these other teachers. He says they're rebellious. They're full of meaningless talk. They're full of deception. They're teaching things they ought not to teach. They, their actions deny God. They're detestable. They're disobedient. They're unfit for doing anything. Good. These are really strong words here. It's very strong language to describe this kind of teachers. And why? It's because of the impact they're having on the church. Verse 11, they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And then you see their motivation for dishonest gain. See, this is a real problem. It looks like there are people who are bringing some kind of uh, pseudo-Jewish elements into this. He talks about Jewish myths. He talks about being, them being from the circumcision group. So, so part of this has to do with something uh, along the line of, of Jewish roots and bringing that in. It's sort of a Jesus plus kind of a teaching, it appears to be, where, where you're teaching the gospel, but then, then there's some other rules, there's some other things that you have to follow to kind of get it right. And it just devastates the church. But this is what happens when people start adding to or subtracting from the teaching that's in the Bible. And the point that Paul makes again and again throughout this book is that right teaching leads to right living. We're going to see that throughout here. Right teaching leads to right living. And the inverse of that is also true. Wrong teaching leads to wrong living. And that's the problem. Let me give you an example. Maybe you've heard of the uh, Oneida company that makes silverware. Our uh, silverware is made by Oneida. Um, that was actually originally started by a Christian group led by a name, man named John Humphrey Noyes. And Noyes believed that Jesus had already returned in A.D. 70 and that the responsibility of Christians is now to establish the kingdom of God by rooting out sin, becoming pure and sinless ourselves, and sort of bringing God's kingdom by our own perfection. Now you can stop and see already this is problematic teaching, right? The Bible is very clear that when Jesus returns we're all going to know that he has returned. And Jesus is the one who establishes his kingdom. It's not that we become perfect and then can establish his kingdom here on earth. It's that he comes and then everyone knows it, like a flash of lightning across the whole sky, and then he sets all things right. 
God's kingdom is established by Christ. So you already see wrong teaching here. Now listen to how it plays out. So they're determined then to make this kind of Christian utopia. So they establish this community called the Oneida community, and they are going to be the perfect Christian community. Now interesting thing, interestingly, one of the things that they decide to do in order to make this perfect Christian commune is a belief called complex marriage which basically is against any exclusive husband-wife relationship. It's basically a free love kind of a community. And the children who are born into this community are then raised by the entire community. Exclusivity was seen as a selfish thing, which is not a trait that you want, and so that's not something you want in the community. You want to root that out. There's actually a document from this time that, that talks about the community coming together and chastising one guy because he was getting too attached to the woman who was going to have his baby. Their recommendation was that he needed to separate from them and allow other men to sleep with her so that it rooted out the selfishness in his heart. Now, it's a bit extreme, right? But it makes the point. Wrong teaching leads to wrong living. This, and it devastates the whole church. It disrupts the whole Christian community here. They didn't last very long, and they eventually disbanded. So what does this have to do with Christian leadership? Christian leaders who have godly character are able to facilitate the health of the church by, by taking care of these things. We need to take action when these kind of false teachings come up. And that's what Paul is telling Titus to do. In verse 11, he says, they must be silenced. In verse 13, he says, rebuke them sharply. Now, this might seem kind of combative to us, but you see what's at stake here. This is a really big deal. If these disruptive teachings that are against the clear teaching of Scripture are allowed to continue to be taught and to start shaping the community of faith, it's going to have a devastating impact on the church. Families will continue to be shaken up like they have been, and the church is not going to be healthy. And that's really the motivation here. Paul isn't trying to beat these people down out of spite. He cares about the health of the church. And he realizes that if the church is going to be healthy, there have to be godly leaders who are people of integrity and character who know Scripture and who can point out, no, this is the truth, and that is something that is not true. It's for the health of the church. You can see the intended result in verse 13. Rebuke them sharply. Why? So that they will be sound in the faith. The whole backbone of this is for the church to be healthy. That's what this is about. That's the why of church leadership. We need uh, strong, godly men of character to lead the church because godly leaders make a healthy church. Now, what do we take away from this passage? Now, obviously, this is a huge call for those who, who are in leadership positions to look at our lives and say, is my character godly? Do I have the kind of character that Paul is talking about that is required of those who lead the church? Do I know Scripture so that I'm able to, to teach the truth, to, to help people along in, in their faith and help them grow to know who God is and what that means for their life? Am I able to, to know the Bible enough to be able to say, no, that's not right, and to be able to correct those who are starting to go astray so that the church becomes healthy? But this isn't just a passage that those who are leaders need to read. This is a passage that all of us who are followers of Jesus need to read. It teaches us two important things. It teaches us that, that character is crucial, and it teaches us that the church really matters. Character is incredibly important, not just for leaders in the church, but for all Christians. As you look at the, the different lists that Paul gives in the Bible about what the qualifications for leaders are, 
One of the interesting things is those are things that should be able to be said of any Christian, right? It's not like leaders have to be not quick-tempered and not pursuing dishonest gain, but the rest of us, well, we can be, you know, greedy and, and angry and unhappy and all of those kind of things. No, this, these are requirements for all Christians. This should be the mark of, of a life that's uh, transformed by the gospel. So here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to take some time and sit down with the first half of this passage. Read through the requirements of, of verses 6 through 9 of this. It takes some time doing it, doing it slowly. Don't just kind of do a quick check mark over it. But my, my discipleship group has done this. We've looked over these things, and it's been a really helpful thing to be able to say, okay, yes, these are things that, that God is doing in my life, or, or these are areas where, where I need God's help to be able to continue to grow. So take some time and look over that list this week. Am I living up to the standard of the character that's required of followers of Jesus? Now, here's the hard part. What happens when you come across something and you say, that's not true of me? I'm failing in that area. You've got a couple options, right? You can say, well, that's just who I am. Throw up your hands and I guess that's, that's good. But of course, that's a defeatist attitude. That, that misses the whole point, right? That the gospel should be transforming us. Or on the other side, we could say, okay, well, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to defeat my temper. I'm not going to be a quick-tempered person. And, and all week, you're going to try hard, try hard, try hard, try hard. Guess what? You don't have the power to do that. And it's counter to the gospel in the first place. Do you remember where blamelessness comes from? Let's go back to that passage in Colossians chapter 1. Once you were alienated from God, were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. That's your starting point. That's my starting point. But now he, God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That's an amazing statement. You stand before God blameless, free of accusation. Why? Because Jesus was righteous and he died in your place. He has removed the penalty and the guilt of your sin. And then the qualification, verse 23. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. As you go over this list and you see specific areas that are required of, of godly character, and you see that those things are not true of your life, you need to get back to the gospel and realize that you are made righteous. You are made blameless in Christ. And then you ask God's Spirit to fill you, not to do this in your own power, but God's Spirit to fill you so that you increasingly bear the fruit of the gospel in your life. This isn't about trying harder. It's about gaining a deeper and deeper understanding of the gospel message that transforms you. God is at work to make us holy and blameless in his sight. That is an amazing statement. Don't try to do this in your own power. Yes, it is hard work. Yes, it is discipline. But it is discipline and hard work with the power of God that is at work in you through his Holy Spirit. It's an amazing thing. So the first thing I want you to do this week is to sit down with this list and really work through it and say, is the gospel bearing fruit in my life? The second thing that we really need to understand is that the church really matters. These people who are here worshiping with you, they are your brothers and sisters. This community of faith deeply matters. You, have to, you don't just come and have your little private religion of you and Jesus. Yes, it's you and Jesus, but Jesus then introduces you to a new family. These people you are with matter deeply. They are your new family. 
So the second thing I want you to do is to take time to pray for these people. Maybe you have a directory at home already. There are a few directories still out in the, in the foyer. Pray through the directory for a while. You don't have to do the whole thing in one sitting, but take a few names. Just pray for these people. Maybe you know their story, maybe you don't. But as you pray for these individuals who are part of this church family together, you know what happens? You start to love them. And you start to wonder, well, what, their what is their story? And that then gives you an opportunity to get to know someone else and to find out what God has done in the life of another person. And it strengthens this community that we're part of. So the passage shows us on the one hand that, that character is crucial. It shows us on the other hand that, that the church really matters. But I don't want to leave this passage before uh, considering the bigger picture of what Paul hopes is going to happen on the island of Crete. Did you notice the slam he had in verse 12 on the people of Crete? Look back at that. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. It's not very nice, is it? It's not the kind of thing that you want said of your people group. And yet, this isn't Paul just making this stuff up. This was the, the standard idea of who the Cretans were. Everyone in the ancient world knew it. So you've got one uh, ancient writer named Polybius says this, So much, in fact, a sordid love of gain and lust for wealth prevail among them that the Cretans are the only people in the world in whose eyes no gain is disgraceful. These are the worst people in the world, essentially. Cicero adds his own uh, qualification here. Moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. They'll do anything for money, essentially. And in fact, it's so bad that the word that, that comes, the verb form of this, to cretinize, means to lie or to double-cross someone. And yet something is happening on the island of Crete. These missionaries have come with, with this story of this man named Jesus, God's own son, walking the earth because God loved his creation so much. Of a powerful God who created us, who knows us intimately, who knows all of our sin, all of our failings, and yet he sent his own son to rescue us. And that message has been going around the island of Crete and is starting to make a difference. So we see in this letter, yes, there are issues here. These young Christians are struggling. They're, they're trying to figure out, well, how do we live together well? How do, how do we tell truth from lies? But at the same time, they're starting to grow. And as Paul is giving these instructions to this leader, Titus, as he's encouraging him, behind this whole thing is a desire for the gospel to transform the island of Crete. What if this island is known as, as liars, as double-crossers, they'll do anything for a buck? What if they started looking like this instead? Hospitable, those who lo love what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. What if the people of Crete start to see that these, these people who, who are following this Jesus person, they look different from us. They used to be Cretans, the, the gluttons and the liars and all this thing, but now suddenly they look different. Their lives have, have transformed. There's something going on here. So you see that on the one hand, Paul is protecting the church by, by talking about why church leadership is so important. But at the same time, he wants them to be healthy because he wants them to be able to participate in this great mission that Jesus has given the church. Right teaching leads to right living before a watching world so that the gospel becomes attractive to those who don't yet know Jesus. That's what's behind this whole thing. We'll see it next week in chapter 2. He's giving all these instructions to different groups within the church. And listen to the motivation in the second half of verse 10. So that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. 
right teaching leading to right living so that the world will know that God is good and there is life found in his son. That's the motivation behind this whole thing. It's not just to protect a church and, and huddle together and ignore the people out there. No, it's, it's to make the church healthy, to send them out with the great news that God is rescuing the world. This is our hope, too, as a church. This is the, the central part of who we are. Jesus has called us on a mission. He's called us to make more and stronger disciples of Christ. And that's why the health of the church matters so much. That's why it's so important that we get godly leaders who are people of character to lead. Because we need to be a healthy community. Because there's a whole community of people around us. Your neighbors and your coworkers and your classmates and your friends who right now are living outside of a relationship with God. And God has called us, those of us who know Jesus, he has called us, you and I, right now to be those who tell the story of Jesus to those who don't yet know. To introduce them to a God who knows them and who loves them and who has sent his son to bring them back to himself. That was the whole message that, that motivated Paul, this, this great news of eternal life. And it's the message that motivates us too as a church. So as you, uh, three assignments then. The first one is for you to take a look at these character requirements. Say, does my life live up to that? Is the gospel bearing fruit in my life? The second one is to be praying for the church, praying for those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ here. And the final one is to pray for our community because there are people all around us who need Jesus and he has called us to tell the great news. Let's start by praying right now for them. Join me. God, the gospel is incredibly good news. We, we say it every week. We hear it again and again and again. You, the holy God who created us, loves us so much that even though we were, we were sinners who deserved to be punished and, and to, to be spending eternity in hell, instead you sent your son to totally change the story for us. You have forgiven us our sins through the cross of Jesus Christ. You have defeated the grave by raising Jesus from death to life and the resurrection. And, and now we have this amazing gift of eternal life that you've given us. I pray that you'd make us a community who is so rooted and founded in the gospel that we can't help but telling others about you. You have done so much for us. We love you so much. Would you please be gracious to us as a community? Shape us to be your mouthpieces, your ambassadors right here in our time. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.